with me this morning to Luke's Gospel, chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, we begin this chapter. On the hills of what is generally a very familiar text of the parable of the prodigal son and also with him the older brother, the the one who had issues as well, didn't he? Our text here this morning indicates the immediate audience to whom Jesus is speaking in chapter 16, verse 1, where it tells us here that Jesus is speaking specifically to his disciples. Now, that's not to say that there were not others there. And in the context here, the disciples, it's not just the what we think of the, the capital D, the 12, but those who have identified with Christ, a larger number, but also you can expect as we find reading later in chapter 16, that there were those who were not disciples at all, still within earshot, hearing the things that Jesus is saying because we see the uh, response the Pharisees have in verse 14, which we will deal with next week, perhaps. Next week is, incidentally, Reformation Sunday, and so I'm not determined if I will just pursue on through chapter 16 or take an aside in honor of Reformation Sunday, something I propose to that. But the following week, we will be recognizing the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And then the following week, we'll have Brother Steve Baker from the Abortions Alternative Crisis Pregnancy Center here. And so, just to stay on task, I may continue through Luke 16 next week, but I just give that warning. I may not, because if I don't, I won't be back for a while, <laughs> at least addressing that, these particular issues. But anyway, we're back here in verse 1 that we're reminded here that the audience that Jesus is speaking immediately to is that of his, only, of his own disciples. Now, the link to the previous chapter, the link to chapter 15 There we had an inappropriate view of worldly wealth clearly demonstrated in the hearts and the lives and the actions of the two sons. We had the prodigal son who wants his inheritance. He takes his inheritance from his father who has not died, takes that inheritance and he wastes it, squanders it. Then we have the older brother who, when he sees his brother return in brokenness and in humility and the rejoicing that is demonstrated by his father who scorns the expense that is being made on behalf of his brother and perhaps because he realizes whatever is being spent now on my brother is coming out of my part of the inheritance. And so he has his heart set upon the wealth of the world as well. And the parable, the parable of the prodigal and the, the older brother that we considered for the last two Lord's Days, at least the two Lord's Days that I was preaching, was clearly directed to the Pharisees, as we saw all the way back here in chapter 15, verse 1. And so today, as we look at 16, the attention is focused on a narrow, smaller circle, and that is the disciples of Jesus himself. And the question I think it deals with for us to the disciples in light of what we have seen in the in the poor handling and the poor understanding of finances and wealth that we see with the prodigal and his older brother is what does 
How are God's people to regard material wealth? How are we to regard it? What does one's dealing with material wealth reveal about an individual? And this text this morning that we'll be considering in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 and following, is in fact, as I've read more and more in my naivety, I didn't think it was that difficult of a text since I started reading what all the other commentators said about it. <laughs> and uh, it is a very difficult because text because of the diversity among commentators about the interpretation as well as the application of this parable. And in light of that, I just, my approach to this text is this. My understanding of it is not unique. In other words, I don't have something new. If you hear what I have to say about this text, you can read certain people and you'll find, yeah, these are the people that influenced Randy's understanding of this text. But neither is my understanding purely of one writer. I do have the benefit of, of reading a variety of commentators on this text, and I've not followed any one purely, so I've got something of a mix as far as my, my understanding of this text. But my attempt here will be to focus on what I consider to be the more clear, that which is, to some degree, more obvious and even as I say that, I understand that that is debatable. Because some would say, well, what you've deemed to be clear is not so clear. And what you've deemed to be clear, you've been wrong in it. <laughs> and so if you do further reading on this text through different writers and commentators, you will find many people who will be, dis be in disagreement with what I say to you today. And so if you do that and you say, ah, you, you're not with these other people, I would say, I know that. But I'll also assure you, I'm not out on my own little tangent, my own little limb either. But I'm in, I think, as I give much thought and prayer to the text and just pursue, Lord, it's your word. There is an interpretation that is right. And I'll go with what I sense in my studies seems to be the best understanding of this text. So. That said, if we're all said and done and you disagree with my interpretation and my application, you stand in good company because there are many godly men likewise who disagree. But may the word of God still profit us today. Begin reading with me here in, in Luke chapter 16, verse 1 and following. Now he was also saying to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a, who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management, for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, 
And how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. So in other words, he's changing the amounts that are supposedly owed to this man. He's not paying these amounts. He's saying, instead of owing 100, now you owe 50. You write it yourself. You're changing this. I owe you 50 or I owe you 80. Verse 8. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness, so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true, entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Well, there are many approaches that we can take in getting to to know a person. And we have an encounter with someone, we've just met them, and usually the first level of that is we begin to have conversation, just to talk to them about things. And, you know, we have today the added benefit. You don't have to see people face-to-face. I corresponded with some of you by email before I ever saw you face-to-face. So a conversation to some degree, just getting to know something about an individual by talking to them, communicating with them. But there's also another way that we get to know someone. And that is through observation. We just watch. We just see how they do things. We note their interaction with other people. We may note how they respond in any given situation. See how they act in different settings. Is there a consistency? And so we understand that that's an important aspect of getting to know someone. After all, conversation can only lead you so far. But when you stand back and you observe, you learn a lot about a person, don't you? Just by watching. That's scary. (laughs) That's scary as a pastor. But I also understand it's a responsibility. But, and we, we recognize that. I want to get to know someone. I'm going to do more than just talk with them. I'm going to watch. And our text here today, there is something that is revelatory. A way to get to know something about people here. And the issue that's before us here is that one's view of and their attitude toward or their handling of Wealth. How do you handle wealth, resources? You know, the parable here that Jesus states, called in my Bible, it's called the parable of the unrighteous steward, is it with a heading at the top of the chapter there? It's about a steward's handling of material wealth. And then Jesus' explanation, which he gives to us in verse 8. 
compares worldly and Christian behavior regarding wealth. And then the application that Jesus makes in verse 9 is how to use material wealth and why you should do so following verses 10, 11, and 12. Now, the most obvious point, I'll just get this out real early (laughs) so you don't get anything else. So the most obvious point of this text here today, I think, is this, is to walk wisely in regard to material wealth and possessions, just as the unrighteous steward or the manager here in this parable walks wisely in his dilemma. That's the, I think, the obvious point of Christ is calling us to walk wisely in regard to material wealth and possessions, and he illustrates that with this unrighteous steward. So, if that is the teaching of Jesus, and that is, in fact, the emphasis of this text, which I believe that it is, we must walk wisely with worldly wealth, and there's a bunch of W's for you, because there are some assurances that come to our hearts if we do. And we want to, today, consider these assurances that come when we walk with such wisdom in regard to material wealth. The first thing, the first assurance that comes to us is the reception in heavenly places. And we see that here in verses 8 and 9. Now, before I get into this, let me just say this. I'm going to break a homiletical rule this morning. A homiletical rule is you have three points, which I do. You spend an equal amount of time on each point, point one, point two, point three, so that there's, you know, a bit of symmetry to the message. And I seldom do that anyway. I'm going to spend a lot of time here on point one because I have to do that to explain a lot of things in here. So when we get to point one and you look at your watch, oh, man, he's got two more points to go through. Let me assure you, two and three will go much more quickly. Okay? Point one will be long because I've got to explain some things about this text. But once that's that's explained, points two and three will be somewhat self-explanatory. So hang with me. Don't worry about your roast in the oven when we get to the end of point one. Anyway, the first thing, the first assurance is given to us is a reception in heavenly places here, verses eight and nine. Now, we all have some measure of material wealth, some of us more than others. That's part of living here in this earth, isn't it? The issue is, is it being utilized for personal end, for personal gains, or is it being used, am I using what material wealth that I do have with eternity in sight? Generally, we don't think of material wealth as having any particular eternal benefit, do we? I mean, we think of it so much of the time as something, all right, you've got to have it to get by. But there's really not much in the way of eternal benefit, and especially when you look at what the Scripture teaches us in some places. Psalm 37, 16 says, Better is a little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Just better to have a little bit than have a whole lot, especially if... You are living righteously. Psalm 49 is a, a psalm that deals as a theme of the folly of trusting in one's riches. Psalm 
Psalm 62 verse 10 says this, If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Do you suppose there's any reason for that exhortation to be there? It knows our hearts, doesn't it? Because when riches increase, the tendency is that we begin to, to set our hearts upon them. Jesus himself speaks of the deceitfulness of riches in Matthew chapter 13 there with the, the parable of the soils. Jesus says, what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and he loses his own or forfeits himself? Luke 9, 25. And Jesus says also in Luke 12, 15, a text we considered back some months ago, not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And then there's the words there of of Paul in 1 Timothy, that the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. So most of us, I trust, as we would want to take to heart what we find in the wisdom of Proverbs. In Proverbs 30, verses 8 and 9, where there the writer says, Give me neither poverty or riches, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. You know, we would just like to live somewhere in the comfortable middle. Because, again, we tend to think there is really no eternal benefit to be gained from possessions, worldly possessions, worldly wealth. If that be the case, the instruction that Jesus gives in verse 9 sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? When Jesus says, I say to you, here's a benefit, an eternal benefit that is yours to be gained with Material resources. Material wealth. Make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. So that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. There's the benefit. To be received into the eternal dwellings, in the eternal places. Now the question is, what does the rest of that verse mean? And it is a bit difficult. Let me walk with you through this verse. First of all, let me explain some words. What does he mean by unrighteous mammon? Unrighteous mammon, he uses in some translations. The wealth of unrighteousness is used here in the NASB. What does that mean? Well, first of all, it is simply a common idiom in Jesus' day. It's a common idiom for money. There's nothing necessarily beyond that, but it's just the idiom that was used in his day referring to all money. And then it says that the little phrase, when it fails, well, what is that? And I think, and I think the clearest application of that would be, your money, your resources, your worldly, your worldly possessions fail you on the day that you die. So when it fails is when you pass from here into eternity. That's when it fails then the phrase they will receive you into eternal dwellings 
Who or what is he talking about here? And again, there's much diversity here among commentators. I'm going to take what I think to be the simplest understanding of this text. That to be received into eternal dwellings is the unique role of Christ and God alone. That the only ones who will ever receive you into eternal dwellings, if you are a child of God, is Jesus Christ. He is the one who welcomes you, who receives you into the place of eternity. Matthew 25, verse 40, I think, sheds some light here where Jesus tells us there that what we do for the least of brethren, we do for Christ. What you do for the least of these, you've done unto me. So what we do for the least of of brethren, we do for Christ who will receive us in the heavenly places. Then in Matthew 25, verse 35, where there it speaks of, you remember the story there, it talks about this is where the separated the sheep and the goats. And the sheep have done these good works when you were, when he was naked, when he was poor, when he was hungry, all these helps. When have we done this for you? And Jesus says, inasmuch as you have done it to the least of these, you have done it unto me. So there is, there a clear indication in Matthew 25, 35, that it is not to be viewed as meritorious. In fact, you get the idea there that the sheep were unaware that they were even doing anything for Christ. What you find there is the fruit of faith. It's the fruit of faith being demonstrated, being lived out somewhat spontaneously. Not doing these things so that there is hope. If I do these things, I will obtain heaven. But doing these things because they have been regenerated. They have received a new heart. They have been granted the gift of faith. And these are quite simply the fruits that are born. That if this be true of you, you will be doing these things. And so there is not in any sense here to be understanding here back in Luke 16 of this being meritorious. That we do something with resources and wealth in this life and hope that payback one day will be to be received into eternal dwellings. No. This is simply a description of those who have come to Christ in faith and they use their resources in such a way that it reflects that they do in fact have an eternal dwelling place with Christ. Important difference there. Not to be perceived as meritorious. So, some would be that God's people are to demonstrate. God's people are to demonstrate the fruit of faith by using material resources and material wealth to benefit others. And by so doing, are doing it to Christ and to be received and rewarded by Christ In eternal places. That's how I understand this verse. And verse 9. To make friends for yourself. You do good things unto brethren. Unto saints. Unto men and women. You do these things. Making friends. But but you're doing it not just to them. To Christ. So you're endearing yourself. Understand carefully how I mean that. To in a sense. To Christ. Not meritoriously. Simply as a demonstration of faith. I love Christ. And so I love his people. And I love to do the things that Jesus does. I love to be like him as I can be. And so that you make friends for yourself by means of wealth. Speaks of your relationship with Christ. And that 
He will receive you, God, Christ, into eternal dwellings. So the question is, how does that fit the parable that Jesus has given us? I mean, it's right and good if that interpretation be right. But how does that fit the parable? What does that have to do with this story that Jesus has told here? Of this unrighteous manager or steward. I understand this, this parable or this, this story that Jesus tells here. As a lesson that Jesus is teaching by way of contrast. And he is here making a comparison of opposites. And that's not unique to the teachings of Jesus in this text. He does it in other places. He does it, for example, in the parable of the persistent friend in Luke 11. We, Again, for those of you that are hanging with us for all this time. He talks about this friend who has another friend comes and he goes next door and he knocks. And there you have... A picture, a man who is portraying God himself. And the lesson to be learned there is that God is not like this. He is far greater. There's a lesson there in contrast. We also see the same thing, which we will consider, Lord willing, in a few weeks or months down the road. The parable that he gives in Luke 18 of the unjust judge who has the widow who come and she keeps asking. And he won't have anything to do with her, but finally because he's tired of her nagging. He hears her and he responds to her. And the point there is, here you have another picture of God. And the picture is, God is not like this unjust judge. He's the opposite. And he's far better, far superior. So it's not unique that Jesus would teach by way of contrast. Or by way of an opposite. Now we have here in this text, parallels... Parallels between the steward and the believer. And the parallels are these. The parallel, first of all, is that you have a steward. And we as believers, we are stewards. He has been entrusted with things, with goods. Likewise, as stewards, we have been entrusted with things from God. And we recognize that what we have is not our own. It belongs to God. We have the parallel that this man makes friends with his with the wealth that he has access to. And Jesus gives the parallel. He says to us, you do that. Verse 9. You make friends. You make friends. Likewise, by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. And then you see the steward comes to an end when he gives an accountability, gives an account. And likewise, we all understand that we come to an end. There is that day when it fails, verse 9. The day that we die. And the resources, the wealth that we may have, no longer is able to help us or to serve us. So those are the parallels that we see there. And then we have the contrast. And the contrast of this steward in this parable that Jesus has is he is dealing and working for earthly houses, whereas we have eternal dwellings before us. He's looking for a place to lay his head at night. We have before us an eternal dwelling place with God himself. You have one who serves. This is his motivation. It is an unrighteous motivation. The motivation of unrighteousness. Doing what he will. Whereas 
in contrast to that, the believers, we are motivated by righteousness itself. So there's the contrast there. And it's verse 8. It says, His master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. Then Jesus makes this comment. He says, For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. Now, if you look at the original Greek, the word is a little bit different. It is on the last part. The sons of this age are more shrewd than the sons of light. The word order is different. It's important you understand that because that's the emphasis. He's comparing those of this age with the sons of light, but with how they both use material wealth. You understand that? He's not saying that the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light are to their own kind. That's not what he's saying here. He is saying that the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind, speaking of their wealth, their resources, than the sons of light are with wealth, worldly wealth, earthly resources. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is, the sons of this age, they act with such shrewdness with the resources, is because they are undeterred by conscience. They're undeterred by moral considerations. It's not a matter of what's right here. It's a matter of what must I do to protect myself. They live for this world. Everything is invested into this world. And so they do what they've got to do for themselves. So you just simply would expect it. They work the system. And here you have this manager. He's working the system. He's working the world system to his own benefit, to his own gain. And just quite simply, we don't have to do that, do we? Because we know whatever we may lose in this place, in this time, God will care for us here, and then we have eternity before us. And such what you have there in the last part of verse 8 is just very simply a statement of fact. It's not an indictment against the sons of light. He's just quite simply saying that the sons of this age live differently in regard to wealth and resources than the sons of light. And you would expect them to do so. They, they apply a shrewdness. They apply a worldly wisdom to the resources that they have because this life is all they've got to, to live for. And so they've invested themselves and continue to invest themselves. And when it starts falling apart, when panic sets in, they're not bound by conscience. They're not bound by moral issues. They're not bound by what is right or wrong, who it may cost. What must I do to save myself? That's what you have a picture of here. You have the world system in action. And so when you have this master in verse 8 praising the unrighteous manager, he's not praising the virtue of what he's done. He's just merely having to concede, you're a pretty smart cookie. That's all he's doing. And if the manager be a parallel in the picture of God himself, what greater, what greater praise do we live for by living righteously where this man, this manager is praised for his unrighteous shrewdness and wisdom 
The goal of the believer is that we receive the praises of God for living righteously. Do not we live in anticipation of hoping to hear one day, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. And it's not just a concession. I've got to admit you've done well by unrighteous means. No, it is a concession. It is a recognition of the people of God living righteously. That's what we anticipate. Here you just seem to have the world in action. An unrighteous master praising the shrewdness, and that's all. The wisdom he applies to protect himself. So the question that we must deal with is does our dealing with material wealth reflect an other worldliness? Or does it just merely demonstrate how attached to this world we really are? How do you deal with your resources, with your wealth? How do you deal with it? Are you using it? Are you using it? Making friends for yourself by charity, by generosity, by ways of serving. Always keeping in mind that I don't have to make everything so comfortable and so perfect and so ideal for me here in this place because I have eternity to look forward to. It doesn't have to be perfect here. That I can, I can give of myself. And even as you see there in, in 2 Corinthians, we read that text. Is, Paul, we want to give more. Come on, Paul, let us give some more. Paul, no, you've given, you guys need to keep, let's give some more. Where in the world is that spirit? As far as our dealing with material wealth, is it an indictment against us? Our claim to faith, our claim to spiritual wealth, our claim to be looking beyond the here and now. How are you dealing with it? And it doesn't matter how much you've got. If you don't have much, you can still wish you had more. He's got the same hard attitude to deal with. Are you using it in such a way that it reflects that you have a reception in heavenly places? Secondly, an assurance that accompany this mindset of walking wisely is the reward of heavenly riches. Boy, it's a quarter till I'm on point two. We are flying. You're in good shape. <laughs> the reward of heavenly riches. Here in verses 10 through 12, Jesus makes a statement in verse 10, which he parallels by question in verses 11 and 12, verse 10, He who is faithful in very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, 
If you've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you've not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? So we have this series of parallel statements. One's a statement, two are questions that Jesus gives in these three verses. You might want to write it down this way. In fact, I've just written this way in my notes here. You have in verse 10 where it makes reference of the little things. Verse 10, he talks about the little things. You can put little things, verse 10, equals. Unrighteous mammon in verse 11. He just changes the terminology. But he's speaking of the same thing. So you have little things of verse 10 equals unrighteous mammon or right, the unrighteousness, wealth of unrighteous in ASB. Equals that which is another's. Or you just want to put the word another's in verse 12. So you see a little, little mathematical problem there. Little things, verse 10, equals unrighteous mammon, verse 11, equals another's, verse 12, and whatever terminology your translation may use in verse 11 for the wealth of unrighteousness or unrighteous wealth. Then right under that, you can put another mathematical problem. The much of verse 10 equals the true riches of verse 11 equals your own in verse 12. So that when he speaks of the little things in verse 10, he explains it as unrighteous mammon in verse 11 and further as that which is no, describes as being another in verse 12. So he speaks of that which is much in verse 10. He explains it as being true riches in verse 11 and describes it further in verse 12 as your own. So that verses 10, 11, and 12 are all speaking about the same thing. But the contrast that he draws here in verse 10 is between being faithful and being unrighteous or unfaithful. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful in much. He who is unrighteous or unfaithful in a very little thing is unrighteous, unfaithful also in much. There is his principle that he states there. So the principle is this. Faithfulness. Faithfulness is an attitude of heart that is revealed in the little things. Verse 10. And particularly here, it is revealed in one's use of material wealth. This mammon that he refers to in verse 11. So that if one is unfaithful in the use of his material wealth or his mammon, little things, he cannot be trusted with much eternal treasures, eternal life. So the point would be this. And again, we're not talking about earning heaven by doing well. These things. We're just talking about this is the fruit of grace. That if mammon is something that you are not, and wealth, worldly wealth or resources that you have is not something that you are doing well with, it's simply a reflection. It's simply a reflection that these greater things have not been entrusted to you. 
And so you need not expect that on the day that you die, that anything is going to change. If they're not yours now, they'll not be yours then. So, if you would expect heaven, if you would expect eternity with God, if you would expect to be right with God, take note. Take note of how you regard worldly wealth. How you regard the material resource, the material wealth that you may have. Are you faithfully using material wealth for the glory of God? Are you being faithful in it? Are you recognizing that you are nothing more than a steward of these things? That God has entrusted these things into your hands not to be consumed upon by you and you alone, but to be used for the glory of God, for the advance of the kingdom of God, not only in how you use it, but also that it might be shared with others who are going and proclaiming the gospel. How are you using it? Are you you being charitable with it? Or is it something for your own self-interest? Do you have? Does the way you deal with your, your material wealth, your whatever resources you may have, is it indicative of one who has a reward of heavenly riches? Of heaven itself? And third... Third assurance of those who walk wisely with the wealth of this world is the rule of a heavenly master. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot. You cannot. Serve God and wealth. So Jesus' final statement here in our text is simply a statement of what is an inarguable truth. He says here, a servant. No servant, verse 13. And actually, this is a little bit stronger word than he used in Matthew's account where he uses this very similar expression. The word here for servant here is a house servant. It's more specific. You understand a house servant is one who labors within a specific house under a specific master. And they would understand that no house servant can serve two masters because two masters live in two houses. Two different houses. And so it's a very clear statement that no one hearing then, hearing Jesus say this would argue. Yeah, we understand that. A house servant, he cannot serve two masters. He cannot serve in two households. But even if there were to be some unimaginable way, some attempt be made, eventually the demands of two masters will collide. And then the affections of the heart will be revealed. Which one do you really serve supreme? Oh, I do not serve anyone supreme. I'm a servant to both. You serve them both to the best of my ability. But there'll be a time, eventually, when the demands of one master will collide with the demands of the other master, and then you have to choose. And what will, base, what will that decision be based upon? It will be based upon love. Devotion. If I've got to choose here, I love this one. 
I'll do what he wishes. I don't particularly like this one. He's out. So when Jesus says this in verse 13, they, they got it. You're either going to hate one and love the other, or you're going to be devoted to one and despise or, or, or lightly regard, think lightly of the other. Devoted, this one, this master, he calls, he bids me come, I come, I'm, I'm ready to do him service. This one comes and, oh, maybe net, maybe yes, maybe no, maybe not right now, maybe half-heartedly. And is it not interesting that when it comes between God and mammon, who gets the half-hearted service? Who's it? You want to serve God and wealth. Serve God and mammon. Let them both be your masters, which again is, is indicative of, of the place of it, isn't it? We're not rulers. We are servants. You are not a ruler of your wealth. You're a servant to it. And it will be your master if you allow it to be. But who gets the short stick here? When it comes between God and the things that I deem necessary for me to make a decent, decent living in this life. And Jesus said, you can't do it. You can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God in wealth. So what is the solution? Do we go and we empty our bank accounts? Sell our homes? Be rid of anything that we possibly can. You know, get rid of the, if you have any, like a retirement account, if you have a rainy day emergency fund, all that kind of stuff. Do we deplete these things? Well, the short answer to that is, is not necessarily. <laughs> I won't even say no. The short answer to that is not necessarily. That's the short answer. But, we have to recognize the ruling, the potential ruling and controlling enslaving power of wealth, of earthly resources, material wealth. And that the only hope that we have of keeping these things in check is that we not only purpose to submit ourselves to God alone we also recognize that everything that we have is under the submission of His Lordship as well. He is Master of my possessions. He is Lord over my resources so that it's not my issue. I will serve Him. I am His. And I will use these things that He has entrusted me for His glory because likewise everything that I possess I bring under His rule, under His Lordship. So then, the only possible way of bringing this, what could be, a God who would vie for our, our devotion, it's only possible that you do that through Jesus Christ. It is possible only to those who embrace Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. You do not, you do not bring things, do not bring your worldly possessions to the Lordship, to the rule of God by simply making a statement, God is Lord of all these things. Anyone can make such a statement. 
These things are done only as one is willing to recognize his absolute need of Christ and that these things do enslave us except God deliver us. And so I come in repentance to Christ. I come in brokenness to Christ. I come embracing Christ so that for one to live in absolute obedience to God without the challenge of the worldly possessions that he must have, he must belong to Christ. A man apart from Christ, he cannot and he will not ever manage to do it. So it's for those who turn from the sin of worldliness, who are willing to turn to repent of an attitude of greed and covetousness and this this desire, this thing that we've we've just got to have more, a little bit more here. Is the way that you deal with your resources, does it reflect the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Does it reflect the rule of God in your heart? Because He is Lord of my heart. He is Lord of all that I possess. Lord of your finances. Lord of your possessions. Lord of your career. Lord of your family. Lord of anything else that you deem precious to you. He is Lord of all. It's the only way possible. It's the only way possible to serve God and not to have these other gods to challenge and to try to replace Him. All brought under the sovereign rule of God. So is it worth it? Well, is heaven worth it? Is eternity worth it? Shall we be a slave to the things of this, this world in this time, in this age at the expense of heaven? That the exchange you're wanting to make? Are willing to say, I need to do as Jesus has clearly exhorted us here, however unclear it may sound to our ears, in verse 9, I need to make friends for myself by means of the, the, the wealth, the resources that have been given to me so that the day when it fails, I'm ready for eternity. I don't look back with regrets. I don't look back with, with all the things I wish I had done for the cause of Christ, for the advancement of His kingdom. There's going to be a day when you're going, you're going to die and it's going to be somebody else's. But to have that which is, verse 12, which is your own, Forever. For eternity. So do you have these assurances? Do you have the assurance that you have a reception awaiting you in heavenly places? So yes, I've got that assurance. So what do the way that you deal with your resources say? Does it speak to the contrary? Do you have the assurance of reward of heavenly riches, those things which are eternal? Yes, I've got that assurance. Are you being faithful? Are you being faithful to God in the way that you are dealing and using your resources? And do you have the assurance 
that God is your God, Christ is your Lord, the rule of a heavenly master in your heart, in your life, in your home. Say, well, yes, he's Lord. So are you handling your wealth, your resources, however much little they may be, are you handling them as though they belong to him and not to you? Recognizing his lordship, his rule in every area of your life. For you, it may not be finances. For you, it may be something else. But are you recognizing the lordship of God and Christ in every area of your life? What does it say about eternity? Let's pray. Our Father, we need to give thanks to you that you call us to, to walk wisely. And Lord, we, we would confess today that we would all be utter fools apart from the grace of God. And that we would be like this steward just part of the world system and working the system to our advantage. And we might gain the praise of men who would say, how shrewd, how wise. But we would not have friends in eternal places. We would not have our God and our Lord Jesus Christ to receive us. Lord, I pray that you would would use this text in many respects. It seems like we're dealing with things that are somewhat ordinary and mundane. And yet I fear that perhaps we take these things for granted so often. Oh God, may we use these things which you have entrusted to us in a way that reflects that eternity is in our hearts and that you are our Lord in a way that brings honor and glory to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.